Log Talk Radio. everyone. This is Dr. Phil Marshall. Um, I'm co-founder and chief product officer for Conversa Health. Uh, we're in Conversa Health's booth here this morning at uh, the HIMSS conference. Um, and so we're very excited to bring uh, this interview to you today because my guest today needs really very little introduction, but I'm going to go ahead and take a stab at it anyway. So joining me here uh, is Andy Slavitt. And Andy has been the most recent acting administrator for CMS. Um, and in addition to that, has great experience in leading businesses as the CEO for Optum Insights. His own company, Health Allies, was acquired by United Healthcare. Uh, before that, had been working with uh, McKinsey and other companies. And so, uh, uh, did I get that right? Plenty of background. Yeah, plenty yeah, of background. Plenty, plenty and, of background so, and so, with all of that said, I don't think that there's anybody who has a greater perspective from the provider point of view, from the payer point of view, from payment reform, from a payment reform standpoint, than my guest today, Andy Slavitt. So welcome to uh, the program. Thanks, Bill. And I'm also wearing the pink socks. And he is, for the record, uh, while those watching on video might not be able to appreciate, I can verify he's wearing the pink socks. Actually, that brings me to another point. Yeah. I'm not sure anybody who's interacted with Andy, over the last 5, 10, maybe 20 years here at this conference, would have seen him dress quite so casually. For our radio listeners, he's in a, uh, he's in a sweatshirt, he's wearing jeans, and he looks more relaxed than I think probably he would have been seen any time in the past several decades. Late night at Hims last night, Phil. Late at night? Okay, yeah. so good. Then we're going to catch a particularly um, open Andy Slavitt today, no doubt. <clears throat> you'll get that. You'll get that from me. You'll get that anyway, right? Yeah, you would have anyway. That. I'll do my best. Well, and and so Andy was well known at CMS for for really you know speaking your mind, being open to everybody about what you're seeing in the market. But no doubt, at your point in life right now, you're really able to take a nice big exhale, and uh, and reflect on the market from a little bit more of an arm's length, which no doubt is is something that you're uh, appreciating and well, and enjoying. Well, one of the things I thought it was really important to do at CMS was to try to humanize it, uh, put a little bit of a personality on it. I think uh, for so many of us, um, we feed off of what comes out of CMS, yet it's, you know, it's a little bit op- opaque historically. So, you know, my intention was to, you know, introduce a little bit of personality, a little bit of fun, a little bit of uh, a lot of that through social media, through Twitter, but also um, trying to set a tone for being very open and honest you know, all of us who work in technology understand that you can't do continuous improvement. You can't get better unless you're willing to call out the problems and challenges, honestly. And, you know, government's not always uh, geared up as a place for people to really have a candid platform. So I think it was a bit unusual uh, because I came in from the private sector, uh, had the background of uh, very simply just trying to make things better every single day. And to do that, uh, it was great to have a platform and it was, uh, I felt no qualms about calling it like I saw it the best I could. And while you were at CMS, Andy, you 
um, oversaw a, a lot of transformation. There was more um, value-based care initiatives. Bundled payment became a reality as opposed to something that that talked about more quality measurement and improvement activities. Um, macro and MIPS mm. <laughs> was was something that can't can't really be. Are you going to blame me for, for new acronyms? I'm not going to blame you for the acronyms, but I will say that nobody saw it more up and close and personal yeah. than you did as meaningful use, especially as we're here at the HIMSS conference, to think about how meaningful use has transformed the people that are currently standing in this room. Um, and now that's all part of the MIPS payment uh, well, system. Well, well, a couple a couple reactions to this. Sort of one is um, we really tried to, as rather than overly program, programatize um, things that would influence delivery system reform. We tried to tap into the psyche of various people that um, are at the heart of trying to deliver better care. And so for one, I think, uh, you know, indicating early on that we have 30% of Medicare payments be tied to quality and value. uh, Making that statement alone was so important for the psyche of the hospital CFO or their boards as they considered, you know, how should they be investing in patient care? Should they be investing in ways that are traditional fee-for-service, or should they be investing in ways that support more value-based? So knowing that Medicare, the biggest payer, was doing that was important. It also sent a signal to other commercial payers that we would get more traction in local markets. So I think at one level it was tapping into the psyche of, of people to invest. At another level, it was also trying to um, make it very clear that just because a payer was going to take action to support value-based care, the payer couldn't own it. High-quality care has to be owned by the people delivering care and by the patients themselves. And so um, I felt there was a little bit of uh, temptation to sort of overdo it. Uh, In other words, create more measurements, uh, require physicians to do a lot more scorecarding, uh, all to to sort of prove a point that whereas what I think perhaps a better path to value-based care is our models and opportunities and approaches that are locally driven by physicians, uh, that we can have some, um, you know, uh, potential value for patients, and then we can just support them by giving physicians more freedom, uh, more, more time, more freedom, more investment, so they can take better care of patients. That's really the idea. You know, I think of MIPS and MAC as a long-term change management process, and tapping into the psyche of the everyday physician is really tapping into folks who are feeling pretty beat up, they're feeling pretty overworked, um, there are a lot of people telling them what to do, not have clinical expertise, not all of them are people they trust and respect, at least alone the government. So, you know, I think that that is, I think, the right mindset to begin the journey. And I think for many people, they're very much at the beginning of that journey. Well, I'd like to take some of what you said there and unpack that a little bit. Um, so one of the things that you alluded to was that morale in the provider community, those who are on the front lines and delivering care, seems especially low. Um, it, 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 uh, there's common complaint about too many requirements, too many hoops to go through, too many patients to deal with. Um, and, and so CMS, of course, just, just one of many there. Um, and so we're at a time when there's hardly been more uncertainty as to what's going to be happening with regard to quality measurement, quality improvement, payment reform, um, and, and, and whether or not a person is going to be insured or not in the same way that we historically have thought about that. Mm-hmm. And so maybe 
just for a moment, reflect on what you're seeing in the provider community right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and what do you think is going to be best in the next three to five years um, or maybe four years exactly <laughs> since mm-hmm. everything is seen through a political uh, lens, I suppose. But what should happen sure. in the next uh, few years to help providers in particular? Well, Phil, you know, you, you raise points of a lot of uncertainty, and, I, and I'll, I'll talk about some of those. But, look, at the end of the day, the message ought to be setting, sent, sending, and whether we as a government, whether we as a payer, whether as a technology vendor, whoever we is, is focus on patient care, let us do the rest. Let us try to help you. But, but asking physicians to um, try to understand the complexities of health policy or a whole bunch of rules for how they get paid. At the end of the day, we, the HIMS, are not doing our job if the doctors can't show up and have the information, time, productivity, capability, and sense of optimism and, and can do feeling and, and, and pride in the and support to take care of patients. That's all we really want. So we have, uh, we have mucked it up because our system is so complex. And by the way, every system is complex. So it's going to get mucked up. It's the definition the of system. Am I wrong? And sadly, in the case of healthcare, it, it is. Um, too many things. And at some level, at some level, what technology companies can do is find ways to isolate the physician from all that stuff. Tell them to focus on taking care of patients. And these things will play out, and they're going to ebb and flow. And you know what? We'll have one administration. We'll have another administration. We'll have all, all those. We'll have new data, new technology, all those things. But the patient and the and the and their their needs and their ability to build a relationship with the system. If it improves, all those other things become more more. If it doesn't improve, if patients can't have a connected relationship with a regular relationship with the clinical community and a coordinated sort of um, stint of their care, then we're going to continue to wrestle with all that stuff. And, and, then, and, and, and then HIMSS will be the same set of events every year, new, new solutions to the same problems, new buzzwords to describe the same solutions, instead of how are we advancing every year. And I think that's what we're sorely missing. Well, one of the great challenges that the, the providers have in particular, large delivery organizations, is they seem to be at capacity on the um, and yet they're being asked to do more uh, value-based standpoint on another, which implies that they really need to take more steps to know how people are doing between visits in addition to try to manage the, um, the very high volume of interactions and episodes of care that they're, that they're managing. And so how, in your mind, does the healthcare system become more scalable beyond beyond that model that's so visit-based and, and still yet demanding more from those providers. Sure. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, one of the great joys I had when I was at CMS was I would I'd take these trips to different parts of the country and get immersed in that community. And I would basically say, you know, coming to Seattle or I'm coming to San Francisco or I'm coming to Kansas City, take me to the most innovative areas. Let me meet with all of the, the medical group. Let me meet with all of the hospital CEOs. I meet with I meet with the patient advocates, uh, visit some, you know, innovation sites. And, and, you know, it's a good way to get a real feel for not just, you know, what goes on in the community, diversity within that community. And I remember going, and I was in San Francisco, and I, I went in, in the morning to San Francisco General, and I sat around the table with um, the, the clinical team, the clinical leadership, and there were about 
50 or 60 people in the room, including like when we went around and introduced ourselves, four people that had the um, title MIPS analyst. So this is this was these were these were people that were prepared to figure out how to make their revenue work and how to make their business work, uh, and they had all quality support. So MIPS was a jobs creator, is what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, sadly. That <laughs> afternoon, these people used to be PQRS analysts. So I'm not sure. So that that afternoon, I went to a stand down with uh, uh, literally it was a woman and her husband who worked in the front office, and literally it was just two of them. And independent physicians, great practice. Uh, I was impressed with what they were doing, but there weren't dozens of people around the table to help and to support them. And so we have this sort of diverse mix of of, of issues and interests and needs. Um, but at level, um, what I've seen is I've seen even very small practices without those resources who are in models like medical home models um, really have a tremendous feel for who's in their patient population. And depending on not even reflecting who they're seeing that particular day, but but they have an awareness that they have uh, seniors who are at home and are not getting out, and they're making sure someone is bringing them their medicine, and they're making sure that someone is focused on it. So ever, however they do it, uh, and there's lots of ways to do it, um, having a patient, having a physician have the time uh, and the information to know who's in their panel, what's <clears throat> going on in their panel, <clears throat> and to be able to get information about what's going on in their panel is we shouldn't look at that as if it's the most complex technological challenge in the world. It's not putting a man on the moon. It's not building an iPhone. It's actually um, very simple logistics and technology support. But it guys off the ball. So I think, I think we tend to overstimulate uh, everyone uh, in the equation. Rather and the ball than being probably the patient, patient relationship, patient oh, yeah. care, and taking care of that individual and their family. That's right. That's yeah. right. And a, and a and a physician's ability to feel like they can do it in a way that brings back what they call the but joint medicine. But they're a medicine. part of that team, that they're a driver of those insights, that guidance, that, that, uh, that way to get to a higher level of, of life. That's right. So, so let me ask you about that, because that's a big um, area of um, conversation here at the HIMSS conference this year. You know, last year it was a drinking game if you said popular health. This, this year um, it seems like... Um, uh, patient engagement, and even you're hearing chatbot activity. Certainly, we're here in the Conversa booth, which is you know something that that we focus a lot of attention on. That you just mentioned, um, the you you saw the two-person practice was doing a good job reaching out and staying in touch with their panel, and yet they have the pressure of a fee-for-service world still by and large. How does how does one navigate that change? How does one go from just being myopically focused on the feet that are walking through the turnstile and more on the population that they that they serve? So, uh, look, I'm not a I can with a model or other model, but what a medical home approach does, basically saying, uh, we're going to give you a per member per month uh, fee. And in primary care, it's done in oncology and say you can use that however you think best with your population. Um, I talked to one physician in our at a rural population. Um, actually, this was a physician in Jersey. A little Skype for all of the geriatric patients because um, he realized there was a lot of loneliness. And he even set up Skype for them uh, when they had children. That parts. And, you know, he's a primary care doctor. And these are the things I thought I'd be doing. He was in his 60s. And I, I never would have thought that. He said, I was planning on retiring. At 65, at 65, a medical home model, 
all of a sudden I started being able to to do things I never thought I would do. And he said, and I'm staying till I'm 70 now. And it's all because he's got an investment uh, in his little practice that gives him a per member per month through a medical home model. Now, will it save money ultimately? Will it lead to higher quality care in ways that are measurable? It's almost beside the point uh, to me because um, at some level, you know, you have to measure these things, but, but you have to try these things. And, and in that particular case, I saw a physician completely engaged, like he was able to see and touch more patients per day than he ever had in his entire practice, um, was saying things like, this is why I practice medicine. And at some level, I'm a believer that that's going to lead to good things. Does it scale? Is it the same for everybody? Unclear, but what's clear to me is the secret sauce there was letting the physician make the choice himself. In other words, instead of saying, I'm going to measure you on how many people are, you know, you've talked to about smoking, which may or may not be the most important thing in his practice, but to say to them, here's, here's some investment, how do you want to apply it? It sounds in that case like that individual was able to broaden his own perspective of what care means by providing a context for social support, right. probably highly driven by the social determinants of health and what individuals needed to, to be here broadly writ as opposed to what he usually addresses exactly. inside his forum. Exactly. I had a conversation with another physician who um, used that money. Cause I would ask the question, so how do you spend to um, co-locate behavioral health specialists at their practice so they could do a real-time handoff if they saw uh, an addiction need or a behavioral health need rather than um, risk the chance that someone wouldn't make the appointment or that they wouldn't know how to have the conversation because she, had a, she said she had a couple of younger physicians who necessarily weren't as comfortable. So they had someone basically rotating around their office now who was a specialist in behavioral health and addiction. And she said, I, now I can walk out, walk back in and say, hey, I want you to, um, you know, this other physician. And she, uh, it's made an enormous difference, an enormous difference. And if we were going to, you know, pay someone to get to better measurement outcomes on, on, you know, behavioral health metrics. I don't think we could do any better than what she just did. Uh, I, I'm, you know, I'm convinced that that's, that, that we're foolhardy when we try to say, oh, we want this, let's create seven ways of measuring instead of saying, you know what, you know best. And by the way, I think that's what unlocks that passion back in the position. Absolutely. So we've just got a few minutes left. But you've now uh, been able to be a more arm's length from what's happening from a policy perspective. And so I know that people listening and watching um, are going to want to get that sort of fresh sure. perspective that you've been able to take a nice deep breath. So yeah. I'm going to ask you uh, just a few what sure. if sure. Um, questions. And so what do you think happens in the healthcare system broadly writ if if we have a change to our insurance paradigm, such that people who have either Medicaid insurance or exchange insurance um, begins to dwindle, perhaps there's a, a change to more catastrophic coverage as being the standard as opposed to um, high deductible uh, care. So if the insurance scenario changes in the U.S., what happens to the healthcare system? Sure. Well, let's take one element of this to start with. If you repealed Medicaid expansion, um, the likelihood that you would be able to replace it is very remote. And the reason is um, it would require Congress to come up with a trillion dollars of new money, um, which it's just never going to do. So you have to look at what happens if you, were, if you repeal Medicaid expansion. Um, some 
17 million people would lose coverage. You'd have a $1.5 trillion um, gross state product uh, decline. Um, you'd see about over the next few years, you'd see about two and a half million jobs uh, disappear as bad debt grows and it would raise everybody's costs. The so, bad debt being the on, bad the debt on the patient, on, on the hospitals mm-hmm. who are not, who are essentially back in a mode. Look, we lived in this world in 2009, so you don't need a lot of fanciful models to figure out what's going to happen. You just have to mm-hmm. look back at what the world looked like sure. in 2007, 2008, 2009. The good news is I think nobody wants to go back there. Um, I shouldn't say nobody. I'd say um, most, most people don't want to go back there. I think there's a national consensus that we ought to try to move forward somehow. Zigzags on how we get there. Um, you know, maybe we'll lose a little bit of ground. But I think, uh, you know, I got the phone with a governor this morning who uh, told me if Medicaid is repealed in their state, they'll have a $6 billion uh, hole in their budget. They will not be able to fill. And that state has, guess what? They have, a Repub- they have one Republican senator. They have a bunch of Republican congressmen. And those folks are going to have to take a very interesting vote at some point, which is, do I vote with my Republican leadership uh, for repeal, or do I vote with the interests of my home state? It's a very tough vote. So it's a classically difficult vote for someone to have to make. And you know, I would just ask people to put themselves in the shoes of Republicans right now in, in Washington and, and just sort of at, see how it feels, and then I think it'll help you understand what's going on a little bit. So imagine you've been um, you've been dining out on um, uh, you know all of um, tearing into the ACA and Obamacare for seven years, and then you wake up November 9th, like many of us, a little bit surprised that you now are responsible for putting forward a better set of ideas. Um, and so. A lot of the things that you dined out on were sort of politically convenient things to dine out on, like, well, the deductibles are high, people must hate that. And then, of course, you come to find out that most of the proposals that have got put forward, first of all, there's not an unlimited number of ideas, to start with that. Secondly, the ACA was largely geared around a set of Republican ideas in Romney care. So very hard for Republicans to find yet new ideas. There's a, but there's yet a need to try to figure out how to do something different and creative. And so when you run that past a smell test of the American people, they're going to look for a few things. Are people going to lose coverage? Are people going to lose protections, i.e. against conditions, against the, the caps uh, that, that used to exist and the gotchas that used to exist in insurance policies, against the kinds of things, is this covered, is it not covered? Uh, they're going to be on the lookout for things like, is this increasing the budget deficit? The ACA was fully paid for, and then some contributed to budget savings. Not so, not so with a lot of these proposals. So they've got a difficult challenge because I think everybody recognizes that there are plenty of ways to improve what we started. And we would have liked to start to see those improvements happen several years ago. I'd love to see them start to happen now. But it's going to take people stepping back from uh, the, the kind of the cliff that they've driven to and stop and say, well, what's going to be best for all of us in the long run? As I'm sure all the listeners and viewers appreciate, this is something that you're very passionate about. In fact, your your Twitter um, uh, uh, feed is very popular, and uh, you're very active on that. In fact, I think you've had some articles written recently about about some of the things that you've stated on Twitter, which is very exciting. Um, and so I would encourage um, everyone to check that out. Um, another question for you, and then uh, we'll be close to wrapping up. So we talked about providers, what they're going through. We talked a bit about consumers. 
Um, we talked about uh, what happens if insurance goes away. And, and, but on the insurance side, on the insurance product side, we all know that the, um, the experiment of Obamacare and the Affordable Care Act and getting insurers to participate in those exchanges so that everybody can have access to a competitive field of affordable health insurance um, has not panned out uh, exactly as everyone would hope. Now, there was a lot of reasons for that, no doubt. But still, people's options oftentimes are very limited. We've, we've heard recently about Aetna and Humana and, and other insurers that have basically said, uh, maybe for reasons that are somewhat politically motivated, that, that you know, they, they just don't want to play. What can health insurance companies sure. uh, to want to participate in these markets? Very fair question. So, right. So, remember, we talked a little bit earlier, you know, we adopted a... I think we're fair to say Republican-leaning free market system. In a, in a world mm. where we have, and look, so I'm a private sector person. I love free markets. We also who love and appreciate free markets also understand that markets sometimes have, are broken. Sometimes markets function, sometimes markets don't function. So we've got parts of this country, rural parts of this country, where both hospital consolidation and health plan consolidation pretty light. So in, unless we have... Uh, like we do in Medicare, a public option to fall back on, you're going to always be faced with this, this sort of uh, situation. I think what we saw over the last few years is that um, we have probably a slightly sicker risk pool than I think we thought we would have coming in. And I think the reason for that is not because we didn't track enough young people. That's not what the driver is. The driver is, uh, I think everybody assumed that employers were going to start to remember that we talked about employers dumping their employees onto the exchanges. Well, that would have brought a large pool of healthy people, healthy people. to leaven the exchange. Sure. Now, that didn't happen. That's not a bad thing. Employers so, kept providing. So mm-hmm. that meant that the government spending less on subsidies would have otherwise. So what that, what that would tell you if you had a functioning Congress, you'd say, okay, we need to raise levels a little bit or, or add some reinsurance something to comfort the fact that we've got a slightly thicker risk pool. Now, not only didn't Congress do that, instead, Congress actually took money that was committed to health plans away. To help them cover sicker populations right. than expected. Right. Mm-hmm. So this, this money, which is, which is a part of the rate stabilization fund, right. something in the order of 8 to $10 billion. That, that was, was yanked away. Was taken away. So and I like when I talk to entrepreneurs and they ask me to explain it, I say it like this. Imagine that you're a CEO and you have a board of directors that's not only not supporting you, but trying to make you fail, trying to find ways to put limitations on you so that you fail. That's, that's a hard place to be in. That's what we've dealt with. And I think, you know, given all of that, it's time to turn the page. Uh, it's time for us to move to a place where we have that level of support. Fixing these problems are very, very simple. They're just math. And I'll give so, so I'm going to tee that up because yeah. that's going to be our final point okay. here on the And that is what now? What should happen now? So one of the mistakes I think that was made early on with the passage of the ACA is they passed it in a way that created an additional $100 billion of budget surplus. And that was probably um, uh, unnecessary. They probably could have done this and just said, you know what, let's make it budget neutral. And so what the, the smartest thing to do, I think, with clear eyes is to say, take that $100 billion here we're saving and put 10 or 15 or $20 billion of it back in with higher subsidies middle class, I don't mean to raise the subsidies everybody, I mean extend the subsidies out to higher income earners, and put in place a reinsurance state-based program, which mm-hmm. has been done in the last... And that, that was brings the rate, insurers It brings well. 
dramatically down, mm-hmm. and it creates assurance to insurers that this is a market that will support their ability to offer affordable health products. Right now, I think we've got a little bit of a schizophrenic set of messages from the administration saying possibly, well, not even enforce the mandate that exists on the books today. So this can be changed. I think the administration has the power to make a couple of very common sense changes, uh, and Congress needs to help with that. Will they do it? No one knows, but we'll see. We certainly will. So thank you so much uh, on the Health Innovation Media uh, channel. I know that I speak for a lot of people, first of all, for your service, but we're going to be watching it very closely to see what you have to say about not only all of this, but whatever other um, crazy ideas you might come up with. So thank you again. Thanks, Phil. I appreciate it. Enjoyed it. Thanks. Nice job, Dr. Marshall. Oh, <laughs> thanks. Oh, good. This is Fred Goldstein with Health Innovation Media. I'm stepping into the booth now with my fraternal twin brother, Doug Goldstein. Not actually. What's twin, we're twin brothers. Twins, we're twins. We're twins. So, uh, uh, Douglas Goldstein, E-Futurist here, Health Innovation Media, him 17 right? That's right, him 17 You can follow me on Twitter, at F.S. Goldstein. Again, G-O-L-D-S-T-E-I-N. We both spell that the same way. So that's good to know. <laughs> S-T-E-I-N. That's it. That's it. So uh, interesting end of the first day yesterday. Uh, got an opportunity to talk to a lot of people after the uh, conference, of, uh, and in particular some of the hospital folks. Uh, they're, they're still struggling trying to figure out what's going to go on and also trying to figure out in particular how they can identify systems or IT that will help them reduce costs because they're losing money on certain populations depending on which state they're in, in particular Medicaid. A number of hospitals I talked to were struggling with Medicaid. Anything you saw yesterday? Well, I think we have to look at the constants. For people to guidance in this turbulent um, health policy changed environment, I think we have to look at the constants over time, right? Inpatient, outpatient, outpatient to the home, the home to anywhere. Uh, people want quality, people want lower costs. Um, and the world's going international. So the question is, uh, how do we liberate the regulations to achieve higher quality, lower costs, no matter where people may be uh, able to go? So we were talking about state Medicaid programs, I think, earlier today. Will, will uh, Medicaid and Medicare be liberated from certain regulations, like sending people out of the country for care? Right. That's so a regulatory. I mean, the... We were talking about the Medicaid as being not able to send people to lower cost care in the Cayman Islands at Health City, which Ascension's uh, right. been part of, and uh, perhaps other. Uh, I, I think we should set up um, destination medicine in Indian reservations and provide certain tax credits and lower costs, almost like it's uh, offshore. Yeah. But, that makes a lot of sense. One of the other interesting things, uh, we had the opportunity this morning to interview uh, Dr. Kaveh Safavi from uh, Accenture, and you'll be able to see that up on the Health Innovation website uh, once we get that finished. But he was talking about AI and, and brought up some unique points around AI, saying that we really need to look at AI as the new UI. It is the way to create the interface for the individual that's personalized, that provides them with with the information or the decision-making that they want. 
and, and use AI mm. to become a new UI instead of saying, well, we run all this cool stuff in the background, but it actually is used to present the information to, as we talked about, obviously to the patient, but also I said, well, think about it from a physician perspective. We've been using these rules-based engines to tell doctors you need to do X, which they hate, and especially when you say it as you need to do X. So perhaps you use UI, the AI to change that message to be messaged in a way that the provider is more likely to accept it and then go through and follow through with that behavior. So behavior change for the provider side in terms of how you feed the information based on an AI engine on the back side. Well, Crazy. you know, Real? No, I think it's interesting that where I was going in terms of the people who, who are newly diagnosed, whether it's cancer, diabetes, whatever, particularly something like cancer, all of a sudden uh, there's a huge readiness and appetite for information, and people end up knowing more about their condition than often their primaries, and then having an overall holistic view of their condition than their specialists. And so then the question is, at what point does AI empower my search of what's relevant to me on the Internet, and when does that cross from... Uh, aggregating health information based on my requirements to medical diagnosis. Well, and that was an interesting point he brought up, that that everyone talks about AI taking away jobs, but they're as more of a way to create a better user experience. And uh, so instead of saying, hey, we're going to use AI to diagnose that patient, oh, by the way, doctor, you don't get to do that anymore with the system is, we're going to use it to help that patient get the information you talk about in an appropriate way at the right time so they can understand it. So applying AI to help a patient in terms of understanding their condition, does that start bordering on FDA? Oh, approval? I'm sure some of this probably would. It's a great if you take Watson's Q&A, right, so Watson's strong at chest and it's a very strong question and answer engine, so it's being positioned as... Um, clinical decision support for the clinician, right? Watson for the citizen. So for taxes, right? I mean, H&R yeah. Block is advertising for taxes, but if we do that for the cancer patient, the newly diagnosed breast cancer patient, does that start crossing into regulatory guidelines if you're providing AI to help someone understand their I would condition? think if you took it beyond educational materials or something like that, and to some decision support, yeah, somebody would need to understand at the back end that when these conditions go into that system, the output is appropriate, which would be, I would think, an FDA. But deal. look at look at the pattern that's creating in people's lives now with the virtual agents, right? Yeah. Alexa, find me this. So that's going to translate into health and medical issues. I mean, people have been searching. And we just saw HealthWise uh, launch an Alexa right. deal. You know, for their with their Bracket content. Bracket two breast cancer, right? Yeah. So people are doing those searches. They're going to speak those searches. Yeah. And at what point is AI influencing the aggregation of the content that knows me? Because we're generating data points through all of our searches. And our then credit the, cards. the other interesting question is, who, when you go and search that health condition, Alexa? Who has that data and now knows, you know, Amazon or whoever, Google with theirs, now knows you're questioning about breast brother or big sister, depending on uh, 
1984, right? What's one of the best-selling books right now back uh, yeah. 1984? Right, right. And so we are we're generating digital breadcrumbs with all of our activities, our searches, what we're viewing on the web. Unless you're browsing unless in you're secret, using VPN and Tor, and unless you're paying, <laughs> there's a big data profile built of Fred Goldstein out there. Uh, that's one big data profile. <laughs> So anything else come up yesterday? I, I just I think the engineering is the intersection of of wearable data, electronic health record data, genomic data, and um, what's yeah. that? Oh, environmental social environmental data. social data, of course. And I think it's pretty cool. I, I did look at a couple of platforms for population health, and they were including social data, terms of health data in there. They had it. So I think the guest is up. So and let you go. So we now have the CEO. Except okay. Yeah, he's just changing batteries. But is this distance okay? Or? I generally, yeah. you know, this is good. We Lean got two in. microphones. We got the okay. got live radio. We're live right now. Okay. Good morning, PJ. Good morning, Doug. How are you doing? Great to see you. I'm wonderful. Uh, Vibrant Health. You're one of the best kept secrets at Hims, I believe. Vibrant Health has uh, been a, a stellar technology player supporting the National Cancer Institute for a, a number of years. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about Vibrant Health to kind of kick off this? Because uh, the latest news that you created was uh, winning a $55 million uh, NIH Precision Medicine Award for the Participant Technology Center. And now that program's called All of Us. It's been rebranded. So, But tell us about your company and what differentiates your – I think it's you have a conversation platform. Thank you, Doug. Uh, thank you for asking. Uh, we're very excited about this intersection of science, research, and technology. So we focus on technology-driven engagements, technology-driven uh, collection of data on, on uh, um, any consumer that wants to participate in the program, and also using a variety of different technologies that are scientifically validated um, we are able to provide population health and public health uh, solutions uh, for millions of people uh, that could use mobile phone, the tablet, the wearable devices, sensors, environmental data, genomics data, electronic health record data, and fusing all of them together to better understand how to engage with the consumer at an individual personalized level. We're very excited about this uh, opportunity. So before you got here, Fred and I were just talking about the intersection of these different data sets. If we see a family in the middle and we have genomic data, so the Precision Medicine Institute is yeah. targeting to build genetic files of a million Americans of all races, types, disabilities, whatever, throughout the country and merge it with electronic health record, wearable data, environmental, social. And you're the... Or the brewery of, of those four sectors, which is really to this next generation of uh, both supporting medical treatment but also health. Yeah. 
So, Doug, very well said. It's the genomics data, environmental data, electronic medical record data, the biobank data, and combining that with lifestyle. So five different sources of data that come together to understand how, how I make daily choices, day-to-day living, affects my health above and beyond how I'm born and where I live. So I have to make these choices and learn about what I should do or what I should not do, knowing all of these five different sources of data. So all that data is made available to the consumer, and they are empowered through this uh, um, method of uh, insights that are derived from big data. So what's really interesting about this is that NIH typically has researchers to do research, come back with findings that never get the participants. Yes. This is totally unique because this is intended to be, through your platform of yes. Vibrant Health, it's intended to be bi-directional communication with over a million Americans about all these data elements to give me insights to what I can do to have a healthier and happier life. That, that's NIH has never done anything like this. This is phenomenal. This is groundbreaking. No question about it, Doug, and I'm glad you picked up on it because uh, all of those participants will have access to their data and return of values. They, should, they will get something back to them through their mobile phones. Just uh, application through the app, the All of Us Research application, um, and that data then enables the person to make daily choices that they would not have been able to do because they didn't have access to data and before. Vibrant Health is powering that, all of us applications. So when Correct. I give my DNA, if we go through the use case, if I give my DNA with, with the enrollment center, then you'll be the participant technology center. You'll be the communication we'll be vehicle communicate. for a million people back to me uh, about, and if I share my Fitbit data and the other data, all that data and you're aggregating together. those multiple data sources, that's mind-blowing. But That's phenomenal. We're very excited about that. So go back to a little bit about the roots of your company, because yeah. it's not like you just appeared and yeah. said uh, you wrote this. You built a history yeah. of technology innovation with the National Cancer Institute. Yes. So we've been around for about eight years now, and our team is a stellar team that comes from very varied backgrounds in technology and media and content. So we came from outside the health and we realized that healthcare problem at the end of the day touches every human being and at the end of the day every human being is a consumer so we took a consumer engagement approach to this um, and started building a consumer platform about seven years ago and then along the way we benefited from learnings about science and technology so science technology and research informed the platform that you're talking about and then we came across the Precision Medicine Initiative, and uh, uh, you know it was a very grueling, very tough competition, national competition, and uh, we are honored that we had a chance to contribute to that. And that was a $55 million award, but before that, you did a whole series of what's called SBIR, right. Small Business Innovation Grants yes. for the National Cancer Institute. Yes. And I, I had the opportunity recently to sit with you with two leaders from the Shar Cancer Center, Dr. Uh, Donald Trump goes by Skip Trump, 
uh, one of the leading oncologists, ran the Roswell Cancer Center, and uh, Dr. James Wade, who ran uh, Geisinger's Cancer Center at the Inova Center for uh, Personalized Health, which now has the Inova Shar Cancer Center. And you had a chance to demonstrate part of your platform to them. Can you share some of the unique features that you showed them the pain management yes. that would allow us to improve uh, ANOVA to improve the quality of their cancer care? Can you share just a couple features of that, the unique elements of that yes. platform that really uh, they were totally impressed? Wonderful. Thank you, Doug, that you pointed that out. Those platforms and those solutions are focused around uh, care planning and to understand the care continuum to understand the workflows for each one of those disease types. So from a cancer standpoint, oncology standpoint, cancer survivorship, and the psychosocial aspects, combining those with adherence like medication management, pain management, lifestyle management, bringing all of that together is what uh, the Innova uh, doctors were impressed about. all of that came from our work with National Cancer Institute from an evidence base and the clinical trials that we have conducted. So it's been a multi-five-year journey of rapid, agile technology development, understanding the science and the research behind it, and iterating and improving the technology, user testing the technology, and running clinical trials. So we feel very good about the process, the science, and the research rigor that we went through uh, to bring technology that's more relevant for cancer care. You left out some of your expertise, which was human factors. Your face was elegant and I think very easy for consumers to use. Now, how do people find Vibrant Health um, and Vibrant Health? They They love the consumer interface, as you said. The goal was to make it easy. The last thing a, a, a patient, a consumer needs is they should not have to interpret what's being asked, what's being told. Correct. So very step-by-step, care-plan-driven mechanism that just tells them, what am I supposed to do next? Don't tell me the big application. I don't care about it. Just tell me, what should I do next? And so what should I do next? And how am I doing? Right. And if I'm not doing that well, help me with intervention strategies that help me to get closer to my goals. So it's a goal-driven, behavior-driven system that helps me to point the way um, and to help help me live a healthy um, and a very active life. Yeah, I believe you're beyond engagement to conversations with people because of that, the nature of that interface. So how how do people contact you and your company? People contact us through multiple go to vibranthealth.com v-i-b-r-e health.com uh, I'm also happy to always hear uh, from partners consumers, patients my email is pj at vibranthealth.com um, and partners and you can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter um, the handle is Vibrant Health and if anybody wants to know more about the Precision Medicine Initiative it's all of us Right.org. All of us. Sponsored by the NIH. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Doug. Are you still? Are you done?
So this is Fred again stepping into the virtual booth at the Conversa Health booth here at Him 17 and of course we're, we're, we're keying up our next speaker. We're going to go a little bit international with the next session with uh, Charles Gustave um, and he's from France, a cancer physician and uh, Doug will give the full interview and get introduced you to him. Um, but it's, it, this, this conference is always so interesting. You walk down the hall suddenly run into 10, 20, 30 people that you haven't seen in a while and you have an opportunity obviously to catch up, opportunity to see some new technologies. Um, this morning I was walking around on some of the wearables and got a chance to look at some uh, uh, applications for mindfulness, which was also of interest to me. So with that, I'll turn it on over to Doug and we'll get going with the next interview. Thanks. Uh, Doug Goldstein, Health Innovation Media here, eFuturist on uh, Twitter. We have Charles Forte. Um, you are an accomplished physician, Ph.D. researcher in oncology, yeah. and you're working with... Uh, with, with Big Data at Gustavo C. Uh, Gustavo C is a cancer center in, uh, in Europe. It's one of the biggest cancer centers in, uh, in the world, com- competing with the toughest... Uh, uh, cancer centers in, in the U.S. Um, and uh, we are completely empowering uh, all the data that we're generating in, uh, in Gustavo C and diving both right now, I would say, in, in oncology in two different trends, which are uh, finally, uh, of course, overlapping with each other, which is, uh, uh, of course, one big trend is immunotherapy. And the other big trend is uh, precision medicine. Uh, so basically, the idea is to uh, take the data from the tumor in a very large scale, genomic data, proteomic data, metabolomic data, and match the treatment to the right uh, based on these profiles. And that, that sounds a lot easier than it is, because uh, I, I like to say cancer and tumors are very tricky, and they change longitudinally during Absolutely. identification to time to treatment, correct? So Absolutely. There is a, so you just mentioned the problem of temporal heterogeneity, which is a, a, the evolution of the tumor uh, during the course of the, of the tumor by itself. Uh, I mean, no treatment in, intervention, but of course, uh, there is a treatment uh, pressure of selection that affects the, the cells and the clones in the tumor and makes some of the part of the tumor resisting and some of the parts of the tumor are, are sensitive to the, to the treatment. And so there is also the spatial heterogeneity on the top of the temporal heterogeneity. So you're telling me part of a tumor can be uh, resistant, yeah. but other can be resistant to the, the treatment. This is what we call mixed responses or dissociated responses. Wow. Yeah. And so by consolidating the data that you're pulling together, you can target? So, so, so the idea is that you could uh, finally do biopsies uh, on the different uh, points, so the different uh, nodes, the different METs, and find different uh, molecular backgrounds from the same patients. So you have a unique technology partner because th- this is a lot of data. If you're pulling, if you have to sample different parts of the tumor in a consistent way, who's your technology partner? So, 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 so our technology partner is SAP. So, so what we are building right now is uh, a tool that allows 
uh, we are not yet at that level of analyzing and be able to make decisions for, for these different parts of, of the tumor, but be, because so far we are analyzing only one uh, tumor point because we cannot sample the, the patient with 10 different uh, uh, needles at the same time. It's not feasible. So what we are doing is we do something radically new. We are doing some unpurposed biopsy. We are not taking the uh, uh, biopsy from uh, the grandmother. We are not taking the biopsy from 10 years ago when the patient just declared the cancer. We are taking a new biopsy uh, with a fine needle. Uh, and then we are doing the uh, next generating sequencing uh, on this uh, new biopsy. And so we are taking a snapshot of the molecular profile of the tumor right now. And then we pull out all this data in this browser that we are uh, co-developing with SAP, uh, which allows uh, the clinician and the researcher to do uh, things that are pretty unique. Uh, First, uh, be able to have a kind of uh, browser view at a population base, and not only a patient base, but a population, and interrogate uh, where are these different patients that are still alive, that have been seen in Gustavo C in the consultation over the past three months, and that are in good shape, good performance status, and that are uh, diagnosed with this pancreatic cancer and that uh, peak keras uh, mutation. Uh, I'm not talking about all the keras mutation, but right. that that specific rare like variant. Across a, a, yeah. so, a so, cohort so, so, of, of so, people in a yeah, similar because situation. Because the, the essence of, of precision wow. medicine is that you may have breast cancer or lung cancer, or breast cancer and all like are finally like a galaxy. You have different right. patients are of the different stars. So what we think right now is so we can uh, identify each patient are different because of the molecular profile, but we treat patients that are not alike with the same treatment. Like breast cancer patients are treated with anti-HER2 therapies, and lung cancer patients posting uh, HER2 mutations, for instance, are treating with the same drugs that were designed originally for... for, for, right. for so, 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 so what we are doing right now is, is pull out all this fragmented, uh, tiny subset of the populations and see and and and, and be able to to have a, a tool which is really cloud-based on the fly very rapid at at, at a time timely uh, uh, in a timely manner for a consultation or for for in a hospital you don't want to wait for ages to right. have the results and then you can just pull out the results identify these uh, maybe uh, eight or, or 50 patients that have this very rare variant that you can these novel uh, agents that, that, that one pharma is, is coming to you with a new drug and, and do you have these patients alive? And, and before we couldn't find these patients. We, did, we didn't know uh, how to find them. We would use uh, uh, thousands of, uh, of mechanical trucks to, uh, to, uh, to, to dig in the, in the data and to analyze where are these patients uh, that are alive and things this or this. What, what is truly amazing to me is that you're doing the precision medicine for my cancer regardless because the whole typology of cancer has changed because a breast can somebody's breast cancer is my prostate cancer 
but you're doing it. You're creating a virtual cohort on the fly to improve my treatment yeah. of my tumor by pulling in all that data powered by the SAP platform, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so to do both things. Did I get that right? To, yeah, yeah. So, so to do both things, uh, so, so, and, and, and so, so precision medicine is, is, is for sure predictive medicine, like what you just right. described, but it's also creating also a new taxonomy, a new classification of cancer. So those are things that, that you just described also, uh, like breast cancer and prostate cancer can be alike. Uh, and this is like class discovery. This is for all the researchers that are making these discoveries like proof of concept that, that will be treatment in the future. And this is necessary also to do this proof of concept. So building these different cohorts. So, so this, is, uh, this is really amazing. And, uh, and, and again, I'm very, uh, I'm very happy with this, uh, with, this, uh, with this new tool. I think these kind of tools are, are going to, to develop more and more in the uh, these, uh, hospitals. And the fact that these are, are going to be uh, uh, cloud-based mostly is, uh, is probably uh, also uh, telling us that, that these tools are going to be available also for mid-sized uh, hospitals or, or health providers. So do you uh, do you live in France and spend a lot of time here? How do you? So, so, do you have so, any so research was, partners? So, yeah, in yeah, the yeah. So, so we have, of course, of, a lot of uh, research partners in the states because uh, uh, as big centers, we, we we are tightly linked with with uh, with uh, with big centers like the big centers of the NCI here, and uh, we have tight links with ACR, American Association for Cancer Research, right. with ASCO, with all these big associations, uh, and. Uh, uh, I would say that most of the people like me right now in these big centers, likewise in the U.S., are trained MDBs, PhD, and, and we used to do some postdocs uh, in the U.S. or right. centers in Europe, sourcing the links and very global uh, ambience and, and environment. Anyway, so so what what do you think the biggest area? Based on you consolidating all this information, co- virtual co, what what you know, up? What do you think the key breakthrough that we're on the verge of? So 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 what what was the big big breakthrough over the past years, and what is going to be the biggest challenge? Uh, the biggest breakthrough was probably and is going to be much more is the democratization of, of all the sequencing tools. Uh, so right now the sequencing tool is is available in big institutions or for with with uh, foundation medicine or, or others uh, for about I would say one thousand to two thousand uh, dollars per sample uh, and uh, we have heard at the um, at the uh, JP Morgan conference weeks ago in San Francisco that that uh, uh, both Nanopore and also Illumina are going to uh, to a couple of hundreds of uh, uh, of dollars, or, or even dozens of, of dollars per Actually, per they should pay me for my data. Already? <laughs> so, so you are a good customer. <laughs> but this is this is just to say that that the, the you you cannot imagine how much the data generated is going to be increased. So, 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 oh, so yeah. the biggest breakthrough that 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 was before was increase yeah. the the data. It's going to be a lot more. Second, right now, what is happening is tools that are structuring the data in an unprecedented uh, way, unmet way, like like SAP solution with this kind of browser with this structuration of data, and and the next step is is predictive modeling. 
Yes. And, and, and we cannot do predictive modeling without data. One and thing, one, technology one, platforms one, like SAP, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, you, you cannot do machine learning without learning. And learning, you can learn only on data that you generated before. So we are right now generating data. The next step is to learn from the data and make much better predictive models. Thank you so Thank much you. for the breakthrough work to make a difference in people's lives who have cancer. I'd like to stay in touch with you, yeah. and those are my cards. Thank you very Thank much, you. Greg. Bye. Wow. That was huge. Uh, international network of uh, specialists, phase in cancer treatment powered by advanced uh, data analytic tools and platforms like SAP uh, Health, uh, which is an incredible tool set, plus uh, this international network of cancer uh, researchers organizing and, and uh, combining to achieve, you know, better care for all of us. Uh, and uh, we're focused on value documentation of that. So there is value in precision cancer treatment. People live longer and will determine ROIs from all these efforts. Howard Rosen, LifeWire. Another innovator in a different space. <laughs> so, Howard, you are a, LifeWire, you are a, a first mover in a messaging connection platform. You have major patent coverage, but give us a a quick snapshot of where LifeWire is today and uh, the major value proposition you're delivering to customers. Well, well thanks, Doug. And the value proposition is we're working with our clients is to become complementary to whatever services they're providing. So in terms of doing outreach, we provide a mobilized outreach, communication outreach. If they're dealing with um, behavioral health, um, if they want to check in on patients, they've got patients in clinical situation, they've just been discharged, and continue that dialogue through our communication platform. That's agnostic, agnostic to whatever service they want. So the idea is to take all the barriers away. And so technologically, we take the barriers away. So if you want to communicate with your own text, it's text. If it's email, it's email. Combination. So when you're communicating and giving information back and forth, it's very simple. It's easy. It's not stressful. So give us um, a use case. Uh, give us an uh, example of how uh, LifeWire um, is being used today. I'll give you a, a, our most complicated use case. I can give you a simple one first, which is we do a lot of work on post-traumatic stress. So with vets suffering from post-traumatic stress, one of the regular outreaches that our clients do is, how do you feel today? Very simple question. And respond in a five-point it's a five-point scale, one being great, five being lousy. And depending how they respond, the system responds back to them. So if they say one, we're going to do feeling fine. The system may say, sorry, yeah, that's great. Keep up the good work. And don't forget, we're available 24-7, we being the clinicians. If, on the other hand, they respond with five, meaning feeling lousy, you may get a response such as, sorry, you feel that way. Why don't you make yourself a cup of tea? And the reason it says that is that their system knows for that particular individual, that's their de-escalator. So it incorporates that into the message. So it personalizes and customizes the message of value for them. And then it says, if you want to reach someone right away, click on this, and it may start an instant message. Or you can start a call with a call center. At the same time, it'll send a message to your provider, uh, clinician, uh, spouse, or buddy to say, just, you know, Howard's feeling lousy right now. So it has a full outreach capability. So it's not that individual's never on their own. They're able to involve, with permission, of course, their larger care system. So... You're an extension of the care team in a high-touch way? That's exactly it. And in a way that 
doesn't get in the way of the workflows, get in the way of the care team. It actually enhances the work the care team does. So do you have some results? Uh, because you've been growing in terms of the, the use of your program by various government agencies, and I think you're moving to the private sector now. But We're in the private sector as well. That's correct. What's What's been the impact of the program in, in, in your initial? you got another use case you're going to share with us, but yeah. what's the impact been? Well, the impact has been, again, all the various things you want to measure. So in terms of with substance use, for example, we reduced readmission, uh, substance use relapses from 30% to 11%. 30 to 11? To 11% with wow. our group. Um, in terms of readmissions, we're in a particular group, again, post-traumatic stress. It's been reduced by 32% wow. on an ongoing basis. Um, but on the other side, so that's a return on value. We're trying, to, we're trying to phrase all these things. So it's a value proposition, which is the ROI outcomes, but it's also in terms of resource management. So on that side, for example, we've got a client. It's a maternal care program, which I'll, I'll give you the details if you want. Is this your more detailed use This case? is my more detailed. Let's talk about that one. Terrific. So what this is, a maternal care program, which is combat-trained female vets suffering from post-traumatic stress who are pregnant. And there's about 1,000 women in that situation. It's not a good combination. A dad of four kids, I know how bad that combination could be. And with that group, uh, when they're put on the system by the clinicians, what automatically happens is 28 assessments are scheduled over an 18-month period. The, all these assessments are created by our clients. It's not, we're not providing the content. It's their content, but it all automates that process. You've given your flexible platform Completely that allows flexible. the care coordinators to create their own scenarios based on their understanding Absolutely. of this particular group of patients. It's to create the scenarios or use existing scenarios and evolve it. So as an example of the evolution, what LifeWire is able to do is, let's say we're dealing with this particular group, they're dealing with stress management, so dealing with stress assessment. In responding, the vet responding, the system notes, based on the rules created by our that that person has higher level of stress than previously. So it may automatically switch to a depression management assessment. Go through the assessment, give an electronic pat on the back to the vet, let her know what's going to be happening, send a detailed report to the clinician, summary report to the supervisor, and if the rules indicate, to actually send a message to a depression doctor to set up an appointment. This is all fully automated. So in that particular case, with that client, they went from a 1 to 25 ratio of one clinician to 25 vets to 1 to 150 vets and giving the same level of service. And so what's the, out- so so the outcome? So the outcome is same med- level of service, improved quality, and, improved quality and greater, so greater reach? Greater, better outcomes because they have more communication with these vets so they know earlier on when there's a particular issue and they're able to deal with it much more quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how are they communicating with the vets? Is it... Well, just text or they had, they had what, been, what are the combinations well, the combinations platform are, supports? Our platform supports however the individual wants to communicate. So it could be text or email or inter- interactive voice or through call centers or an app or an IM, however they want to communicate. Pass, uh, right now. Passenger pigeons? Uh, you know, they're tough because of the school. You can't do those Not anymore. yet. You know, you, you caught us. Drones? You doing drone, drone delivery drone. yet? Everyone's got to do a drone. I've got a son who's an engineer, so just give me 10 minutes and he'll figure something so out. So you got drones on your roadmap. Is deliver messages? Absolutely. Adherence Absolutely. messages and support but, messages? But, but as facetious as I like to think you are with that, we actually have... I'm connect- 100% serious oh. on drone care. Well, that's absolutely, but we're tied into uh, wearables now. So we have actually yes. have access to over 175 wearables to tie in the data. So you're collecting data on a quantitative basis as well from the wearables on a qualitative basis in terms of the messaging itself. So do you have outcomes of the maternal uh, 
example you shared? Well, with the maternal care, it's, it's the return in terms of utilization, the 1 to 150 from 1 to 125, uh, managing, managing that population. You know, so, the, outcomes, the outcomes are is managing these individuals, like knock on wood. You know, this is also a population that has a 70, may get this wrong, but not too far off, 78% possibility of a suicidal event. So, and so we have not, and at those patients who have been using our system, there's not been any of those events that have occurred. So are we also at risk of more premature babies out of this group? And Absolutely. Because of the stress and the issues associated with it. So you're, you're tracking this program. This is a program. It's an ongoing program. It's an ongoing just program. Just roll out and you're yeah. gathering data over time. It's an ongoing, yes, exactly. And is very happy with it up to now. They're exp- looking to expand it. So it's all very exciting. That's great. But, and the key to that and actually work with the other populations is when you deal with communication is, well, that's all fine and good provided somebody responds. What if they don't respond? And the reality is, as I learned in terms of behavioral health, a non-response is a choice to be silent. So, in fact, a non-response is a response. So we measure non-responses. So if somebody doesn't respond to, let's say, two messages, or if they don't respond within two hours to message, that's considered a response, and a whole series of protocols are, have been created to deal with that. So there's always that connectivity. A non-response is a response. Did you just say that? Yes, non-response is a response. <coughs> Excuse me. And actually, wow. uh, we work with uh, high-risk suicidal vets. That's a very particularly valuable piece. So there's always that element. That's really that's really it. important work because of the people who've served our country. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So thank you for that. That's well, it's, the impacts. It's our own incredible. Um, so what's what's on the roadmap other than drones? Well, aside from drones, as I said, we've been just tying in wearables has been a fairly right. new piece that we're tying into, and that opens a whole new level of insight um, for individuals because you're qual- qu- collecting quantitative and qualitative data. And getting in terms of the, as you're hearing, but the data collection being an issue, that it provides, a, a, we call almost like a 3D fingerprint, because each individual is different between the wearable, with how they get, let's say, a Fitbit response to their sleep and exercise pattern, how they respond to how did you sleep or are you feeling, and you put those pieces together, it's a unique element for each individual. It's creating a data fingerprint. It's just through this measurement. And so, so, and so to where we're going is we're also realizing this is things we're just starting to play with and we'll work with other partners to see where can this go. One of the other things that um, I was talking to your associate today is that how people respond depends on the medium. So there's a medium distortion. If you ask, were you satisfied with your doctor visit? Can you explain the insights you're getting from messaging people across these different formats and how a medium could distort Somebody's feedback that it's, should have alert the care team based on absolutely, that? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's actually interesting work we did internally, uh, then presented to the client, which was looking at, you know, basically McLuhan, the message is the message the medium. And so with that audience, we looked at the same question set, the same population, but different approaches, whether it's using text, email, IVR, call centers. And we found with the same population, the same question, people respond very differently to the communication platform. So give me an example. So if an example is how good was your doctor's visit, these would yes. be given. And on the call center, uh, with particular group, it was 75% said the service was great. On the text messaging, same question, same uh, population, how good was the doctor's visit, 82% said it was lousy. <laughs> That's a huge swing. That's a huge swing. And it, 
because you're dealing with when people speak to somebody else to a call center, they, they respond how they think the person wants to hear. Text messaging on the other side, as that example, it's very immediate, very good. What about reaction. an email response or a mail response? Email, people kind of ponder. It's, a, it's interesting. It's a pondering medium. Text messaging, the average response is 29 seconds. Email, average response is three hours. So people ponder on that. It gives them time to think about it, where text is just instantaneous, and they respond because that's just the message came in, and the people just tend to respond that way. So how do we contact LifeWire? And you have a demo. So how do people With, experience your demo? To get a sense of what LifeWire is, the easiest thing is to text the word demo, D-E-M-O, to the short code 59937. What was that? What number was that? 59937. 59937. Thank you. Uh, how do they contact you, and uh, what's your website? The website is www.lifewiregroup.com. And to get hold of me, it's hrosen at lifewiregroup.com. Great. That'd be great. Well, thanks for your time, Doug. Thank you. Okay. It's, it's uh, around here, boiling at uh, Tim's. We're brewing innovation here. Walking the challenge here. Yeah. We got some really uh, dynamic. We've had some great insights today on innovation and health. Thanks, Howard. Yeah. After, uh, after like 2.30. Okay. All right. Give him hell. Wow, this is one of my favorite innovators in healthcare. All right, Pat, yeah, how are you? Good to see you. Happy New Year. It's good to see you. Hey. You're looking healthy. Uh, you must you, be dog. using your own uh, app to stay healthier. It's more than an app. It's more than an app. Visual DX is an incredible solution because ultimately people are, are visual. And uh, healthcare has relied too much on words, and you really reinvented that story. So can you give us a top line on kind of where Visual DX came from and some of your really cool innovations around Simpticons and going direct to consumer now. Yeah, well, Visual DX is in a space that you don't see much in this vast exhibit Absolutely hall, not. Diagnostic Decision Support. Which visually, would, right? Visually. <laughs> and so you would think that getting the diagnosis right would be three-quarters of this exhibit hall because quality care begins with an accurate diagnosis. But, of course, this exhibit hall is mostly about the commerce of medicine, right? Not driving accuracy and care. And so what we're really focused on is allowing the clinician and soon the consumer to search by symptoms and other findings, such as lab data, travel history, medication, their gender, their age, and get to a patient contextualized differential diagnosis and to represent it visually. Give me a... A picture. Give me a, a quick use case. Let me tell of, you a great use. Let me tell you a great use case. So, do you read the, the New York Times at yes. all? Sunday magazine. Yes. There's a case. This Sunday, just a few two days ago, the case was a um, a medical student was visiting her niece. And so it's her brother's daughter, and the sister-in-law said to the medical student, the niece has a rash around the eye. And the medical student was asked by the sister-in-law, can you take a look? And she said, Amanda said, the medical student said, 
I'm just a medical student, which means I know absolutely nothing. And she said, well, let me try. So she looks, and she uses Visual DX. And if you read this really... So she took a picture of the rash? No, no, she, she looked at the, at, the, at the niece, entered the type of lesion... Into her, like a into mobile... Her, into the mobile, mobile version of Visual DX. Okay. And she figured out that likely that her niece had herpetic infection of the eye which can lead to blindness. So she actually um, encouraged her sister-in-law to take the niece to the pediatrician. Immediately. Immediately. And the pediatrician said, I don't think it's herpes. And the pediatrician then was the uh, sister-in-law insisted that the pediatrician take a culture. And over the weekend, this little three-year-old said, Mommy, don't turn the lights on in the room, which is a sign of photophobia, intolerance to light. And sure enough, on Monday, they get a call from the pediatrician that the cultures were positive for herpes, and then the child's taken to the ophthalmologist. But this is a case... The medical student had the correct diagnosis the, on the front end. Right, right. And so visualization, we all as humans are great at visualizing. Right. And visual the medical animals. student who said, I don't know anything, actually knew a lot when armed with information. And so really, really what we're going to see is transition from um, physicians, students, residents, which is what we do, because Visual DX is already used in 1,600 hospitals and large clinics. Over 90 medical schools are teaching with it. It's totally ubiquitous because pattern recognition is how we solve problems often. So you have this incredible visual library of rashes and all kinds of conditions uh, across all therapeutic areas, correct? Well, it's more than just rashes. So we have... we do any diagnosis now. So the great expansion of Visual DX was in a year ago at HIMSS. We announced the new Visual DX where we went from skin, eye, and oral presentations to any complaint. So you could search in Visual DX today something like abdominal pain, or you could put in double vision. So it doesn't have to be a rash. Correct. And uh, you have something called Sympticons. Yeah, Tell so me about Sympticons. Sympticons are actually really... They're not really, like Decepticons or Transformers, right? No, no, no. It's actually, um, once again, visualization. So, you know, people have conceptualized our company as, you know, rashes and eye right. problems. But how do you represent internal symptoms? Well, instead of reading a, a laundry list, like a, in a book, or a long right. paragraphs of prose... What we can do is we can represent the patterns of the symptoms, the labs, diagrammatically, so the clinician can very quickly compare That's fabulous. Um, so what's, tell us about, so is this just available to professionals, or we're doing something with direct-to-consumer, Yeah, we right? do. We always have done uh, skinsight.com, which is spelled S-K-I-N-S-I-D. T like a play on insight.com. Like play on insight. So skinsight.com has uh, been out there for years, but we recently redesigned it into a responsive design, and it's used from all over the world. So patients can go in there and look at uh, the focus of skinsight is narrower than the professional tool. So they're looking at skin right. mostly, but patients can go in there and put in, you know, I have a problem on my leg. What are the common problems? and they can just see what those common problems are. So it, uh, skin sites you millions uh, times a month. Wow, that's great. So in addition to inventing Sympticons and this whole visual uh, diagnosis to support accurate, effective, 
shorter time to treatment of care. You, you, you coined a term, uh, clinical omics? Clinomics. 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 So tell me about clinomics. Okay, so, of course, well, here in this great hall here, what do we see? We see the cliches of health IT. So we have precision medicine, analytics, big data. Every booth will have all these cliches, right? So we're talking about genomics, biomics, proteomics. But where's clinical medicine? I mean, we have a a, um, billion outpatient visits a year in America, on average three per person in the population. What do they do? They come to the doctors. They don't say, here's my DNA. Here's my biome. They say, doctor, I'm depressed. Doctor, I have back pain. Doctor, I have a rash, right? So where's the precision around clinical medicine, right? Do we, we, in this great hall, do we see any cliches of clinical medicine? Like I'm going to ask the right questions of the patient. I'm going to do a, a thorough physical exam. I'm going to think methodically about the patient's problem. You're not saying that here because this is the business of medicine. But when we really talk about patients, Patients come to doctors with problems. Yeah. The problems need to be solved. And a doctor needs to bring there all the information in the medical literature and the uniqueness of the individual. So when you go to see your doctor, you say, I'm dizzy, or doctor, I have back pain, or doctor, I'm depressed. There's a set of questions that should match your uniqueness as an individual. What medications you're on? Are you diabetic? Do you have, right. are you on, um, you know, certain medications that could trigger that symptom, right? So that is clinomics. That is the idea of asking the right questions in a precise, repeatable, reliable way. So we're talking about really building a high reliability uh, form of medicine. And so the idea is that we just type in symptoms and big data is going to crunch is a fallacy because... You have to ask the patient the right questions. If you just type in what you hear, your patient's not volunteering half the information you need to know. I mean, they say 10% of the population is addicted to opioids. Some incredible. And how many patients come in and say, Doc, addicted to opioids? You need to ask, right? So, how's your pain today? Right. That's, you know, you are an incredible physician leader. Uh, an incredible innovator. Um, what's next on you? What are you inventing next? Well, so we are about to launch Visual DX in Spanish, French, German, and Mandarin, so that uh, you could be using this around the world. And um, uh, Ovid, a Walters Kluwer's company, is going to be presenting Visual DX internationally this Congratulations. year. Congratulations! Yep, that's and, huge. Yeah, so Visual DX will be available to clinicians around the world. Any other secret well, you're we working on? You can't talk about it. Yeah, we got other some, st- I know you got other stuff you can't talk about yet. Yeah, well, we have some real innovation going on with deep learning. and Deep learning? Deep learning. How deep? It, because it's deep with pictures. Oh. Yeah. So, so we're, we're going to be saving that for next year when we sit down year, and talk? Next year's interview. Then I'm going to be showing you a Hymns demo. Hymns 18? Hymns we'll have 18. a demo at Hymns 18? Absolutely. You promise? Yeah, why well, have a demo in my pocket now? I'm just not showing it to you. Okay, so how do people connect with you and uh, learn more and figure out how to uh, apply your your solution and system to the accuracy and care? Well, first of all, any uh, Cerner customer can turn on Visual DX using Fire, 
inside the Cerner record now. So we're engineered to fire. Great. And, you know, Epic's moving to fire. They just announced they have fire ready in Epic. And uh, we learned here at the meeting that all scripts, most of the EHR vendors are moving to the HL7 fire standard. Visual DX has had fire embedded in it for over a year and a half. We're ready to go. We have uh, Visual DX used inside the Cerner record. Um, so www.visualdx.com and contact us. Okay. Terrific. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks Always a pleasure. All right. All right. We're innovating uh, better health through Visual DX, and uh, it's available to 1,600 households, right? You said 1,600? And many veteran facilities and others, right? Great. Thank you. Good to see you. See you. How are you? Good. Doug, Randy Parker. Randy Parker. Yes, sir. You're a tremendous innovator, right? Um, I I don't know. I, I think so. We had lunch not probably like three years three, ago, right? Three years ago. You're doing something pretty innovative in extent. So we went from inpatient care to outpatient care, care to home care. Mm-hmm. Now, anywhere. You're a leader in anywhere care, right? Anywhere care. That's so correct. tell us about what you're doing and uh, how your company's doing. Yeah, so I think that the, the MD Live, which I founded in 2009, with the uh, business vision of creating a health system without walls, how to drive 100 million people into a more efficient care delivery system that was enabled. Right. I way underestimated the obstacles that <laughs> I would be encountering over this last nine-year period of time right. that was a combination of technology reimbursement and provider and consumer adoption of being able to more efficiently connect with their providers through technology. People want it, but we had all the barriers. If they were where they wanted it, if they could get comfortable with the trust that the provider on the other end was a position of quality that they would have trust and uh, belief in. And we had reimbursement models at work or direct pay models. That would, would, would work because in healthcare, unlike any other consumer product, there has to be reimbursement in order for it to get uh, adoption. And so we have a perfect storm today an inflection point going into 2018 yes. where the technology, the reimbursement, the uh, delivery models that are supportive clinical protocols that are now being developed exist. So give me the, give me the quick snapshot of how MD Live is being used by a normal guy like me. Or Yes. So we have the largest audience of members in the digital health space, over 20 million Um, members. Those members and access of that affiliation come from a shift where it was focused over the last few years as a a large self-insured employer who wanted to reduce the risk by offering live benefit so their members would not inappropriately go to the ER when they can resolve virtual urgent care uh, conditions. So this is over... Skype or the internet. It's or a secure, integrated platform of video, phone, text, 
communication. 20 million Americans have access to it today? Yes, over 20 million members have access to to today. Those members are either part of health plans, now um, piloting and looking at this as a way to create convenient access to care to part of plan design. And what we're seeing happen for the first time, it needs to be in design as more efficient, appropriate alternative to to a primary visit when appropriate or ER. The fact that about 30% are adding this as a covered benefit in 2016 and about 50% uh, this year of health plans, we predict over 70% of the health plans in 2016 will allow uh, allow and reimburse this as a covered benefit. So that changes everything. Congratulations. So you have a network of doctors in every state in the country? We do. We operate 24 by 7. Our average wait time is under 10 minutes. And we have over uh, 1,000 physicians that are either employed or are 1099 provide the service to our health system without walls. And given the regulatory of licensure in states, your platform has to, if I call in from Montana, you got to channel me to some Montana, right? Exactly. So the logistics behind this is like unbelievable. It is, well, first, it is unbelievable in the sense that we have to align the patient location with the physician's license and, uh, and connect that. We also you know, get what people uh, misunderstand about our platform is we need a technology platform to be able to do that, which has to be very uh, uh, sophisticated from a logistical perspective. We're also managing a a large group medical multi-specialty practice as well. So although we have common logistical scale issues and scale matters to an Uber or Lyft, we have the second complexity of that we have to manage physicians correct and we have to do that with a consumer expectation once we put them in front of their mobile phone that is equal to apple and so those combinations allow it to be quite challenging and we do that really well and today because of the amount of members we have and the shift in utilization payment processes the ability to do that at scale you know you you've had a successful career as an innovator but you have a personal reason that you started MD Live, as I recall. Yeah. So I, I've been an innovator in, in technology and design for over right. 40 years, originally in the media space. You started I, when you were like two years old, right? 17. <laughs> when I started making movie content to put up at home. Right. And I talk a lot about the similarities of telemedicine. Blockbuster and Netflix as a transition of what's happening in healthcare today. The healthcare component, my passion is with four sons and seeing the unbelievable inefficiency of going to a physician's office uh, led me to this quest of trying to improve access, efficiency, and care uh, using tech and healthcare services. Well, thank you so much for joining us and sharing both your personal mission of coming from entertainment and healthcare to fix a really, really big problem. How do people contact MD Live? Sure, you can reach MD Live at mdlive.com, and uh, that's available on any of the uh, applications, iOS or Android. So what is there any um, secret innovation you can share with us as your parting words on uh, what's going to be next for MD Live? 
think what will be next for MD Live is the transition from low acuity into more care at home delivery efficiency uh, around acute uh, care conditions, multi-specialty. Are you doing anything to enable someone's care team or social network to support them in that environment? 100%. Oh? 100%. We're looking forward to those announcements. Thank you so very much. Have a great day. Thank you so much, sir. We'll be right back. So while a couple different people are sitting here uh, having Doug suddenly saw a few friends of his out there and walking by, and I'm going to sit back in here at him. We've got one more uh, interview coming up with Nick Van from uh, NTT Data, a really well-known expert in the area. So um, Doug will be handling that when he comes back in. And we thank you very much for joining us again for the Conversa booth, live at 17, booth number 5658. Uh, uh, fantastic looking around and seeing what they've got and what they're what the folks are doing. And we've actually got the Pink Sox tribe getting some pictures with Randy Park and a couple of Mad Logics in the pick as well. Ray Shively and then Doug and Greg, all in the Pink Sox tribe, uh, which has been amazing around here. A lot of people have been coming up to me and asking about it. If you want to find out more about it, go to PinkSox.life. Hit the internet, PinkSox.life, and check out how it started. And uh, you can also see pictures of all the people around the world who uh, have been inducted into the Pink Sox tribe. So uh, we'll get a, our guest here in just a second. And let me see if uh, Doug is going to come back in and sit down a little bit, perhaps give me a little rest. I don't know what it's like being on this side of the mic, Fred. Well, that's the left side. I usually like being the right-hand guy. That's the important side of the mic right there. Is it? Yeah, so, um, this is the hot seat? That's the hot seat. I heard it was the hot seat when you were interviewing a few folks. They said oh, you had some rather pointed questions. I don't think I had any pointed questions. What could have been the pointed question? Oh, come on. Come on. So uh, I didn't even talk about how do you uh, amp up the T cells to uh, figure out where those cancer cells are hiding. I thought you were into some newfangled kind of diet cancer suppression program or something like that. Yeah, I didn't but even no. talk about nano drones, you know. Yeah, I saw you brought in drones, though, in the text messaging thing. So the question is, what are they going to do? You're going to have a drone fly by, like, over the football game with a big flag off the back? Hey, take your meds. So we're going to have personal drones hovering right here, whispering in your ear what, what health behaviors you ought to be doing. That sounds Don't eat like that macaw. hot dog, man. Don't that eat that like hot dog. That sounds like when we came out with the app at USPM. It was, we chose no. macaw because it was the it, one... are the most most liked animal in the world, and they can actually talk. So we thought we'd run the blue macaw up against the gecko. Use that as a marketing angle. And you'd obviously have this parrot on your Hey, don't eat that. All that stuff, you know? I know. Artificial agent who's just trademarked uh, the nano macaw drone concept. Yeah. So we have a patent pending on it already. Do you really? Yeah, it's real-time AI. Running through a drone. Right. That that constantly hovers next to your right ear. Correct. And, and it's got 
location sensors in it so it can never leave from your right, right. ear, right? Picking up your content is packaging it to automatically submit the patent. Issues everyone you meet with, understand exactly what you're doing. Correct. Send it off to people you don't want who now know what you're doing, right? Right. Yeah. We watch it. We'll watch you all the time. So. Yeah, I, I love the visual DX that visual recognition visual as opposed to reading saves time. Right. And looks like it approves accuracy. That actually works. And uh, MD Live's incredible. Uh, where they've gone, I think it's been about four years since I had lunch with Randy, and uh, you know, yeah, be motivated. Well, medicine to, has finally crossed that threshold. I think it's still <clears throat> there's still the big issue of your penetration in terms of users within a company. I know, you know, utilization still a little bit lower, but I think as they change the benefit plans and begin to drive people to it because of a benefit restructuring. Um, you'll see it. You'll see those continue to grow. Well, we got a good here. Look, what are we looking at? Ava Health and American Well. So American is probably a big competitor to MD Live, right? I would think so. I think so. And uh, In Touch Care's got cupcakes over there. I don't know that. You know. You haven't gotten one yet. I I did. I don't know what it has what to do with health, though, but it's uh, <clears throat> they were addicted. Well, the only good thing Mostly, about this uh, heavy is sugar. the conference is so big that you're going to walk it off. Yeah, I had 12,000 steps yesterday. Did you? Not yeah. bad. Oh, I did get to the gym this morning. You beat me. You made me feel guilty yesterday when you asked me if I worked out yesterday. Yeah. well, that's So that was that good. social pressure to encourage uh, improved health behavior. That's, that's right. Very what we had to important. do is we had to link up through some device and check each other out. Make right. Sure. We can compete our steps on a daily basis. That's it. Gonna, is that going to motivate us to both better fitness? Well, it may motivate me to lie. So, so my weakness is late night uh, chips. So I have to figure out how to break that habit. Late night chips. Yeah, yeah chips at night. Yeah, so it's a, it's a, you have to control that. You know, it's a, about teaching yourself to recognize the cravings and work through them. It's deep. Chip cravings are rather rough. Yes. My difficulty is when I'm watching a football game because then it's well, just. What Put is the it food then? out, and what it is, it's going in. Right. It's unconscious. It's unconscious. Completely unconscious. So do we need a nano drone in our brain to tell us to, tell us to, to change the receptors so I we don't we'll, do the unconscious? I think what we do with that one is we get a drone that instead of talking to you, it duct tapes your mouth shut. <laughs> so there's no way to get anything past the lips. So we can have a pizza drone. We can have a, That's a good idea. artificial. Uh, we can have a respiration uh a, uh, a heart, you know what we can later drone, and we can have a duct tape delivery drone. I got another idea to insert in there. The anti-pizza delivery drone. The spouse orders the drone that grabs the pizza before <laughs> it's delivered and takes it away, so the husband doesn't eat it. Yeah, I haven't seen any droves humming around this, but I, I there think there was one earlier. I know, but I think it's. Uh, I think they've regulated the airspace. Yeah. Which they signage anyhow, so. Yep. Traditionally, they've done that anyhow. I think we have our next guest, uh, Dr. Nick Vanderhagen, who's been an innovator in voice. In voice. In voice. Voice and health. Is his voice innovative? Or? His work is his a physician leader. In I get it and now. Applying an voice to vo- actually understand Got all it. these medical terms. Well, I'm going to get out of here. Did you want to talk to Nick or I'm, I'm talking to Nick? You're going to leave it to me? I am. Who's after Nick? Who's on deck? We're done? Wow, we can... 
Nick, good to Dr. see you. Dr. Nick Vanderhagen, you're, you've been an innovator in healthcare for a few years, and uh, you've been an innovator in voice and health, which we'll talk on, but uh, you're the chief medical NTT data service. So, uh, tell us what this mission is. So, um, from a standpoint, uh, we, we are uh, now part of NTT, the larger organization, which is all about uh, services, systems integration, um, very much focusing the 14,000 specialists who really understand how we're delivering um, the that allows you to tie all of this data, solutions, systems all together. Pretty much a Switzerland in the uh, space and offering, you know, true insight by people that really get it live in the So tying the special together is unique and it has must have, because of the complexity and the list of kind of things they do, is, tell me more about the tying the special together. So, um, you know, from the perspective of the individuals, we've got people that, you know, like me, I'm a, I'm a good example. Physician, I live and breathe healthcare. I delivered patient care. Without that kind of comprehension, it's sometimes difficult to understand some of the challenges, the difficulties of incorporating technology. Now, we see it from the patient perspective, but we don't all see it from the clinician perspective. So, we've got folks that come from the pharmacy world, people that come from OT, nursing, right. you know, the whole gamut, and assemble the right resources to get a product for a customer that, you know, maybe outsources everything, so we have everything, you know, full outsourcing, all the way through to, um, you know, customized projects that are, how do you enable analytics that is functional, integrated into my workflow and delivery. We'll talk about that. That's interesting. So what what is um, an example of the, the work you're doing with NTT? And then I want to talk about voice and health with you. Okay. Um, so, I, you know, some uh, a couple of interesting examples. So thinking about analytics, one of the things for a lot of folks is that uh, analytics, People talk about it, but how are you actually getting to know about So we did a project that assembled all of the data about patients. It wasn't just clinical data. It was social media, you know, everything that the patients would And it was looking at preoperative patients abdominal surgery, which is from a, a post-operative infection. Oh, they did One of the higher risk areas because it's in the gut and, you know, so you tend to have a relatively high rate of post-operative And based on that, they took the data, all the information, applied analytics of that to identify the patient most at risk and played um, intervention to that, applying resources to prevent and, and, and stop that from happening, and had this astounding rate over the course of one to two years, reducing uh, post-operative wound infection rates in that cohort by up to 
That's awesome. It's great for patients and great for the institution to save money. The patients love it. And, and it wasn't about more resources. It was about focusing the resources that we have. Right. Places where they were going to make the most And it was so successful that they're expanding it. One example. Then the other one that I really like in this space is um, done with the partners. We have a vendor neutral archive. Um, so you were always there, right? It's interesting. We've added in imaging, lab data, and now genomics. I know you have a big passion around the genomics data and you know where that is. Or you have to store that and integrate it. So then what we did was we created a. Um, application infrastructure that how could you apply value to this data? And we partnered with people, and one of the partner companies is ZebraMed, that says, let's go and look at the imaging data, analyze it, and say, can we find some clinically relevant pieces of data in here about patients that's unknown? requires no clinical intervention, so these are clinically validated studies that will identify patients at risk from osteoporosis from CT and X-ray and imaging that's already taken place. We're not saying let's do more imaging. No, right. <coughs> using existing data. And then what you do is you create, again, a task list of people that you go after and say, let's play some intervention and prevent them from getting osteoporosis or osteopenia. Same with cardiac disease. We're looking at it from a liver perspective. So they're expanding. So you're able to analyze the images through some kind of advanced secret sauce technology you all have. Uh, are you also bringing in and augmenting that with like unstructured data from no, the so doctor's notes, or and I, you know, so that, that's the important point here. Is this is pure pixel analysis. Right, right, right. That's now, could you? Yeah, absolutely. So as we think about the expansion of that, and you know, think about the vendor neutral there's lots of opportunity to expand on that. And say, what else could you do? What else is interesting? Um, you know, where can we derive value? And the key asset here is. Don't give the physician more to do. Don't no, no, you another. So do the work behind the scenes. Make sure that it's clinical. So it must have precision and recall. So, you know, we're not messing around with, you know, hey, we think. No, we're getting it. We're getting it with accuracy and, and you know, recall. And then offer the physician that data that then he can go do something with. Now he becomes best friends with patients who he's actually gone to and said, hey, I think you need some help. Right, be clear. You know, I don't want to sort of, you know, not doing this without people knowing about it. Um, don't want anybody to sort of have a surprise. You know, some people don't want to know. That's fine. But I know I want to. And, you know, anybody that lives in the medical world knows intervention early, better out. And, you know, even preventative. And, by the way, that's fine. That's fabulous. So you're doing some really innovative work, uh, making use of images and data to better help doctors be more efficient. But you have, um, you have a bit of experience with voice in healthcare. I do. And uh, I, I think we're, you know, there's been a lot of buzz about the Apple Watch, the mobile phones. I think voice and uh, virtual agents, can you give me your perspective on uh, how fast consumers are going to adopt voice well, and asking medical questions? and information of Alexa or I, I, so, so just look at the adoption rate of Alexa over the uh, holiday It was the top selling item in Amazon, as I understand. No surprise. I will tell you that it is the first um, uh, technology device after the iPhone. My wife says, why don't I have 
And that she skipped the Apple Watch. She skipped the Apple yeah, Watch. She's not so much. You know, there's a thing in there that I think. Oh, it doesn't look. Of, I don't doesn't, know. Doesn't you know? Particularly it's sort of. Which I think it is. Sort of. But, you know, any technology that people are you know really pushing hard uh, is you know clearly on a, a, a path. Alexa did some really really good stuff around uh, voice capture. I believe it's either seven or eleven. And that's really important because what you're able to do with that is to both directionally find and identify where it's coming from, but more importantly, remove all the noise. Um, and that's value in terms of the recognition And then you build underneath it an infrastructure processing and infers. And, you know, I think what we saw with Apple and Siri, then Cortana, and now Alexa is not just intelligence, but, you know, humanistic aspects. Some of that is about humor. There's a bunch of Easter eggs that are in uh, Alexa that, you know, some people don't necessarily know, but all vested around the phrases that we might know, you know, may the force be with you and make some clever responses. So, you know, go have some fun. If you've got an Alexa, go find the, uh, the, the Easter egg. But that makes it humanistic. It makes it an interaction. And, you know, you can see that happening. The one thing I would say negative from a healthcare standpoint is in a hospital or a clinical setting, it can be a little disturbing your directing and having a conversation with something separately. You want to have the conversation with you. So I'm not sure that you're going to see Alexa sort of interacting in the, the, the clinical setting necessarily unless it's to provide data, you know, questions the labs or something. Sometimes it's easier with the keyboard because that's, you know, it doesn't intrude on this personal interaction that people like. I think it's going to be an extension of the My Care team. So you think it's another consult in, in that home? Uh, Alexa, play music. Alexa, turn on the lights. Alexa... What about this mole on my skin? Let me take a look. <laughs> Let me ask you this question. So I like to say she's always listening, or he, it's always listening. So the question is, if I say, Alexa, play jazz music for me, or Jimmy Buffett station, if I'm just talking and I'm not saying Alexa, is Alexa listening and gathering Absolutely. My point, even though I haven't mentioned her name, is yeah. she gathering well, data points that Amazon's going to put so, into my so behavioral profile? about this. I'm not an Amazon employee. I, I, you know, I, I can only tell you my best understanding. But for that passive thing and that trigger word to be occurring, there must be listening occurring. Because otherwise, how else would it know that you said the <laughs> Correct. So is now, it gathering the data in those other conversations? And, and again, my understanding is, Yes, it's, it's capturing it, but it's, it's on a rolling that occurs and it gets deleted. And my Cadillac's paid for, right? The suit the, that's currently in process, looking to some discovery to see if they can identify what went on in a market or not, centered around Amazon and Alexa and whether he was listening, uh, and some questions. Right now, Amazon is in, in the court, uh, determining, A, whether they're going to release whatever they have. At the point we determine that they have to, then we might find it. But their position is we don't. And for the most part, why would they? They don't need to. So I can only take them at face. 
So do you think that using Alexa for health-related and fitness-related things is going to be a big thing, or are we just going to use it to turn on lights and play music? I, I think it's a facile interface. It's just another channel. You know, and it's, it's a generational thing. If you talk to the generations, some people like voice, others prefer text and screens, and you know they don't want to talk. You know, just take your kids. Do you ever get them to pick up the phone and call them? Probably not. They just, you know, and they don't even have their voicemail set up. Or if they're like, you know, some of the kids, you know, this is Nick Van Tate, couldn't take your uh, call right now. Please send me a text message. So. You know, Alexa just fits into that spectrum, and if it gives you a channel to access information and interact, then I think that's a good thing. Um, but it's not a single point of an answer. I just think it supplements. Well, frankly, I think that um, people like to order stuff, and Alexa doesn't talk back. So I think that the quote younger generation addicted to text is going to realize that they like the virtual agents that they can order around without having, without having to type. Interesting. So I don't have a, a, a device in my house. Um, I have friends that do. I would be interested. I mean, you, you know, albeit it would be single data points in my instance with my now grown children to see how they interact and what they would. I know certainly my generation see it and see value. Um, I, I don't know. I'm, I, I think the jury's still out as to whether that. I, I see more of them. I see them in cars. All right. And, and, their accuracy continues to rise, it becomes the easier interface. You know, clearly from my history, working from Nuance, they had clear leadership in that space, especially around the healthcare space, where you could say, show me the lab results, give me the lab results. You know, all the variations on the thing simplifies your interaction with technology to allow you to get... Saves time, right? Exactly. If it's accurate. Yeah. Otherwise, it's a pain in the Exactly. But I think the accuracy of virtual agents, so you spend a number nuance so you've seen the accuracy of voice recognition and natural language processing light years in what five every, six every years every year it would improve by 20 percent now that was on a diminishing return because it was already pretty accurate and the question is what's the tolerance level at some point of the level where people say yeah i'm willing to get i don't know where that is it's interesting in healthcare i think it's it can be a little bit better, the accuracy. What we found in radiology, that's why radiology was one of the earlier adopters, was that the accuracy level was higher, quicker, because they're much more predictive. Speech recognition remains essentially a predictive technology that says, I heard the following, therefore I think the next things that are coming. It's part of the, 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 you know, the way that it gets it. And in healthcare, and in radiology specifically, if I say chest, nine times out of ten, it's going to be x-ray after that. Right. But, you know, that's what's going on. And, you know, in healthcare, it's a much more predictive content. So it's more accurate. So maybe it will be faster adoption in pure healthcare settings versus commercial or, you know, consumer patient focus. So let's... Uh you're an innovator, and uh, we've given some joint talks together, various groups, um, from graphical user interface to, you know, vo now voice interfaces. What about direct neuro interfaces? Are we just going to, how long till I think it and Alexa will do it? 
So I think we've already seen some innovation around that space. Um, you know, that probably the most exciting and relevant uh, progress has been the enablement of paralyzed individuals. I saw just recently a piece that showed somebody that was essentially a that had a, a he, he had decided and, and gone through the protocol to have embedded sensors and was now able to action. Yeah, I was just talking to Battelle about their just, work in that. And, and, you know, so there's a clear need there, opportunity. Um, you know, what can we get to Neo with the jack in the head? Um, Nanobot, a drone just uh, circulating, picking up that extending out my mental brainwave so yeah, you can pick know. it up directly I, so, through your neuro so nanobot. what I know about the, the picking up of those emissions, our capacity to sense at any kind of distance is very challenging. You know, even with the sensing head, headbands and so forth, they're, they're very sensitive to movement and um, you know, positioning and so forth. So I, that I think is further away, but actually embedding things potentially. Why? Why not? I mean, why would you bypass that whole interface and think it and it will happen? Lots of you know unintended consequences of that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, and and I, I my wife had not seen uh, Minority Report, so oh, right. we, we rewatched it just recently, and I, I quote that a lot because I think it was, it's been fairly predictive on a number of fronts in terms of you know uh, eye scanning software that scans you. Oh, hey, it's you, so now I'm going to Right. I, I, we're able to stop doing some of that. We're doing that faces. Oh, they're doing it in department stores, yeah. and uh, you're getting real time because they. They, and they it compared know, to your purchase and they're doing it based on the device that's in your pocket and so I think we're seeing some of that and that was you know so that's sort of maybe a picture of the, the future that not everybody likes but we can just pick the good part of that and say I want that I know what I want I want a jack to the back of my head for power for everything <laughs> That's the one thing I'm constantly struggling with. Where do I get power? So um, you're an international speaker. What's uh, what's what talk? What's your favorite talk you given uh, on your rounds these days? As people ask you to come out and share your insights. My favorite discussion presentation is all about future thinking and where things. You know, to really get people out of their comfort zone and get them thinking about how technology can expand their area. Obviously, I'm in healthcare. The place that I spend the most time trying to understand is outside of healthcare, because I think we can learn from those experiences. And if we can bring some of that innovation into the healthcare space, I think we can start to jumpstart some of the broken aspects of So I like blending I'll pick drone technology that it features in mind. You know, it, it's interesting. Amazon talked about drone delivery of people want. Well, now you've got drone delivery happening, and we're seeing autonomous heli drones being promised in Dubai for air transportation. Uber already has Uber helicopter in Dubai, but they're also talking about autonomous drones. So imagine that, and I sort of think about that worldwide in, in Africa, where you've got drone deliveries really remote, right. and they're using fixed-wing drones to drop in technology and, and um, medical supplies. That, you know, I'm really passionate about that. We can spread and, uh, and democratize. Well, thank you. Drones as a service. It's the future.
great seeing you. Uh, my favorite discussion of him so far, and uh, have a great day, and let's invent the future. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Always fun. We're still live there. We're still live here. Live we can't tell you. We can't tell you the, the secrets. No, the we got real secrets seconds. here. And I'm looking, so, so what do you think of the hole? To me, it's very And you know what? I was talking to somebody. They said that the neighborhood, the predictive analytics neighborhood, the uh, This is very hard to navigate. I mean, it's very inefficient for people. They're great idea. But Lucky Land Casino asking people, "What's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?" Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha! In my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me. What's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.